inspire the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open. We'll be looking verses 13 through 15 this evening. Congregation, hard times, they come to us, don't they? And they can knock us off our feet. How can we process them? How can we make sense of them? How can we live through them? Hard times come. Sometimes we deserve them, if we're honest. Deserve when something happens like that. Other times, though, like Job, God sends hard times to us in his unfathomable, his, his providence. A theme we find in the Bible is that of hard times, of suffering. We see that God's people encounter suffering. But God brings through suffering to glory. God exalts his people. And here's the best part is the end is always better than the beginning in God's plan. God turns sufferings into glory. Only God can do that. His ways are past finding out. He is almighty. Christian, this is your theme. You share in this theme. Don't lose sight of it in the midst of your suffering of hard times. By keeping this in mind, you and I, by God's grace, can live rightly in the midst of suffering. We can help others in theirs. Now, we see this even in the history of the church, which covers all the way from the beginning of time, the fall into sin, thousands of years of suffering, then redemption. What we haven't seen yet, but we will, is exaltation for eternity. And what the church goes through reflects the head of the church, Jesus. Jesus who came to rescue us. His entering into this world, his suffering, then his rising, his being exalted even to the right hand of God, as our reading from Philippians so wonderfully tells us. Now the church, we suffer. It can be traced back well, to Adam's sin, again, perhaps our own. But the head of the church is holy and righteous. Christ willingly endured suffering in order to redeem us, his people, to reconcile the church. We read of that in our passage from Isaiah. Now, this book of Isaiah, it can be separated into to two parts. Chapter 1 through 39 is, is one part, often thought of, and then chapters 40 through the end. In the first part of Isaiah, it ends with a prophecy, the old covenant church being exiled. The second part, Begins with declaring comfort. Comfort, comfort, ye my people. And our text is taken from the second part of that book. Now we read even in this chapter how God prophesies the restoration of the church. The proclaiming of good news to her of redemption. These verses transition to the head of the church. To Jesus, the one who redeems the church and who sends forth messengers to declare that good news. Now we focus here on the suffering of the head of the church who in Isaiah is called the servant. God's servant, the servant of the Lord. Now we who live in the New Testament, we know this servant of the Lord to be Jesus, to be Christ, the Messiah. Now, interesting about this book of Isaiah, there are four passages in Isaiah that are called servant songs. Passages that, that focus on the servant of the Lord, the head of the church, the Messiah, Jesus. 
This evening, we're just going to look at one of these servant songs, the fourth, the final one, and it's good to focus on that. Because we're approaching what's commonly called Good Friday, the day we especially remember when the Son of God, Jesus, laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin, suffering, dying on the cross. So let us consider this passage, the beginning of this servant song I proclaim to you from this, we are to hope in God's servant. To hope in God's servant who suffered and then was exalted. Let's first look at verse 13 there in chapter 52 and see the theme of his life set forth, his life's theme. Now before God reveals the, to the prophet the suffering of the servant here in chapter 53, in these verses he gives an overview. And this verse, verse 13, reveals the main theme of the servant's life. Though there's suffering, there's exaltation. That's the main theme. Verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now we know, as we read, the servant of the Lord will suffer, suffer greatly. But it will not be due to his own failings, moral failings, intellectual failings. Events will not happen to the servant out of the blue, unforeseen, surprising, overwhelming him. Quite the contrary, all that will happen to him is according to plan, God's plan prophesied. And even the plan of the servant himself. We read here, the servant, my servant will prosper. Interestingly, this same word prosper, it's found in Genesis 3, verse 6. Maybe young people, children, you remember back Genesis 3. Well, that's when Eve was tempted by the serpent. And Eve saw the tree that God said, do not eat from it. Eve saw that it was desired to make one wise. That's the same word. Prosper here, make one wise, back there in Genesis 3. Now, children, you know what happened. Young people, you know what happened with Eve. She ate the forbidden fruit. She did not become wise. She did not prosper, but she became a fool. She died when Adam ate from it. Bringing sin, bringing death upon us all. Brokenness, no prospering, not wisdom. Foolishness and death. That word prosper, though, it appears throughout the Old Testament and other places, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And the word there is used when, when God tells Joshua that if he lives according to all God's law, he will have success. We know what happened in the book of Joshua, don't we? By God's grace, Joshua, the Israelites, in general, they trusted in the Lord, they followed him, and God blessed Israel, conquering much of the land. This word prosper, translated here prosper, it, it covers acting wisely from Genesis. It, actors be, it covers acting successfully. That's how the servant of the Lord will live. He will act wisely. He will succeed he will live according to God's will for his life, and living that way, he will prosper. God's servant will prosper. And that's what Jesus did. He never wavered from God's law. Not once. And he prospered from that. Now, we see in our own lives, we often do wander from God's law, don't we? And as we wander, as we stray, we, we suffer. There's not the life that the devil promises. We give in to our anger. 
We give in to lust, give in to greed, laziness, maybe rebellion, maybe outright idolatry. We can keep going. The end is not blessedness, is not joy, is not life. The end of that is death. Children, that's something your parents impress upon you when they discipline you. When you do wrong, you don't find what you thought you would find ultimately, happiness. Instead, you find pain. Sin leads to death. Now, Jesus acted perfectly. He acted wisely. He had success. He lived out God's will for his life. And look at the result here. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Even though he suffers. And that's why you may say, wait, we're a wagon maker. Jesus died. He suffered. Well, but we know the end. He was raised, right? He suffers, yes, but ultimately he's exalted. That's the main theme of the servant's life. Young people, the world, the flesh, the devil, they tell you live in a certain way. Many different ways. But all of them a different way than God says to live. And they say, if you live my way, you will prosper. You will be happy, healthy, wise. You will live it up. Do not be deceived. Do not live contrary to God's commands. Do not live as you want to live. Do not do what your heart tells you to do. Don't do what feels right, what feels good. By God's grace, turn from yourself, turn from sin, cast yourself on Christ, strive to live to how he has said to live, live in humble faith. You might not have earthly wealth, you might not have earthly health and fame, you might be persecuted, but you will be living as a child of God ought to live. Sometimes the darkness is so deep, we're tempted to despair. The darkness will be deep for the servant of the Lord, very deep, deeper than anyone has ever gone or will go through. As Jesus told his disciples before his suffering, before his death and resurrection, in order to prepare them to, to cushion the blow, so we encounter here. God, through his prophet, extols his servant, so that as we would read, if we would keep going through, consider these things, this intense suffering, we do it with this frame of reference. Now, there are three verbs here, virtual synonyms of each other. That is, they mean the same thing about more or less. But the overall message, using those three different words, those synonyms in this way, gets at the high exaltation of the servant. He will be high, lifted up, greatly exalted. No ordinary success. The world says, follow this path, you'll be rich, you'll be popular, you'll have pleasure. God promises something well beyond whatever the world can try to promise. Extraordinary success. We see this in the life of Jesus. Again, not as the world thinks of success, but true blessing. Yes, he humbled himself unto death, the death of the cross. We read that in Philippians 2. But God raised him from the dead. And Jesus ascended into heaven. He sat down at the glory of the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. That's the theme of Jesus' life. Wisdom, prospering, exaltation, glory. Suffering is there, yes, but glory and exaltation, his triumph. That's what we are to especially think of with Jesus. Yes, the cross and him crucified, but he didn't end there. Cross has meaning and blessing for us because he conquered on it. 
He has acted wisely. He has been successful. He has been highly exalted. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters, we who belong to Jesus' body and soul and life and in death, go through hard times. Maybe great suffering, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual. But in Christ, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved us. Your main theme that is not suffering, but being lifted up. Yes, you and I sin. Yes, you and I go through hardships. But don't be dragged down by your sins and temptations, your weaknesses, your sufferings. When darkness seems to overwhelm, look upward. See in Christ your future, your destiny, your ultimate theme and outcome. This life is short. It is brief. It lasts a few years. Now, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial and suffering, it seems long. God gives us this to draw our minds to the bigger picture. By God's grace, do not despair. By God's grace, resist those temptations. Don't continue in sin. Trust. Obey. You've been given a new identity, a new story, a new theme because of this suffering servant who is exalted. Now, Christ is unique as the servant of the Lord, as the Son of God, as the only Savior. But you, believer, you're in Jesus. You share in his theme then. Suffering, yes, again, not as a sacrifice for sins, us. But suffering, but also glory. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Maybe you have lost heart. Maybe you're mired in sin. Maybe you are living for yourself. Maybe you think you will find meaning in alcohol, in drugs, in exercise, in sensual pleasure, in, in money, maybe even in family. Maybe you think you can cope. They, they can give meaning. They can get you through. That's foolishness. The end of that is death. By God's grace, turn from all that. Turn to Jesus. Here is his main theme. Wisdom, success exaltation, prospering, being high and lifted up. It's the main theme. Now, while there is a main theme to Jesus' life and thus to our lives too, there are also many particulars, day-to-day -day events, sub-themes. We see this with Jesus, as even was prophesied with Isaiah. And we move on in that, then in this prophecy, moving to verse 14, and our second point, his astonishing suffering, his astonishing suffering. Now, this verse sets up a comparison, a contrast. It uses the phrase, just as, beginning of verse 14, and then the word, thus, in verse 15. As one thing happens, so another thing will happen. Here again is verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The first thing we see here is the being astonished. Astonished at the servant. Now, for some reason, the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to switch to the second person there. You. See it there. In verse 13, behold, my servant. Verse 14 says you. And then he moves to the third person. His appearance. He. We see here, most likely, a glimpse that Jesus is being addressed. And so then... We are too. Now, the words that appear in italics there, my people, 
they're in italics because they aren't there in the original. It's something that the editors of this translation put in there to try to make sense and, and smooth things out. Maybe they were trying to make parallels between the suffering of the Jewish people and the suffering of the servant. Now, most translations don't take this as referring to the people, but to the servant. Now, think of it that way. It's referring to the servant. As Jesus then later, growing up and, and hearing this prophecy, he could hear it. Perhaps he would read it. And he would know the prophet was speaking to him. You. Hundreds of years later. And then quickly goes on to address the rest of mankind. Many would be astonished at Christ and his suffering. Pilate was astounded in one sense by the whole process of Jesus' trial. He ended up trying to wash his hands of it. Couldn't believe what was going on, what the Jewish leaders wanted to do. Roman soldiers, perhaps even some of the religious leaders, were astonished. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. But understanding the many here, probably of the elect, Those who entrust themselves to Jesus and believe in him. We are astonished at Christ. Astonished at his appearance. We don't see Jesus with earthly eyes and we ought not try to have any image of Jesus. But with the eyes of faith. Some of Jesus' own disciples, they would see Christ in his suffering. With earthly eyes. John, he was at the foot of the cross there. Jesus' mother, she was there too. They recognized him. Three crosses there were on Golgotha. Mary knew her son was on the cross in the middle. The prophet here writes, though, is a vision where he sees in his mind's eye this vision. And so, so, what are we to make of it? How are we to understand it? Think of it this way in terms of this appearance marred more than any man. God originally made humans how? In his image, right? Good, upright, righteous, holy. And then by that first man, Adam, his own willful disobedience, he plunged mankind into guilt, into brokenness, into destruction. What are we then to make, spiritually speaking, of a vision where the appearance in a prophetic vision is marred more than any man? Whose form more than the sons of men? We know Christ, as far as we can tell, physically was not marred more than other people are. Horrendous things have been done in earth. We'll come to that more later. But spiritually, that's said of Christ. That can be said of Christ. His appearance was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of man. His guilt... He took all our guilt upon himself. So we know from later in the Bible, this is the great exchange. The Son of God, holy, righteous, took upon himself our guilt, our sins. Focused in him, focused on him, laid on Christ were all the sins of his people. The height from which he humbled himself, again, Philippians 2 brings that out, being in very nature God, 
He humbled himself, the Son of God, exalted in glory, receiving the continual praise of the angels, the beloved Son of God. It's mirrored to the depth to which he humbled himself, the guilty one. The only one who has suffered hell to its uttermost. That's marring more than any other man. The beloved son being forsaken by God. It can't get any worse than that. It's a depth unimaginable by us. This description Isaiah uses then. His appearance was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. It's fitting to describe the spiritual situation. The only way the prophet of old could describe what he had been shown in this vision. While Jesus underwent enormous physical, mental, emotional suffering, it was his spiritual suffering that was the greatest and never even close to being surpassed or equal. That's what marred him more than any other man. Because there were and there are many humans who suffer physically, emotionally, mentally. Even we can say more than Jesus suffered in those earthly ways. Thousands were crucified. Thousands, maybe millions, were whipped. Thousands were betrayed. Perhaps even in the lifetime of some here, a great holocaust has happened in our world. Great suffering. But there's something far beyond any earthly suffering that our Lord, the precious Son of God, suffered. The prophet describes it in his vision in extremes of earthly suffering. But the reality was far worse, much deeper, something that we cannot see with our ears, that we can't touch physically, that even as we hear groans, it doesn't get the depth of it. It's something we must be told to have our minds open, to understand, to believe. It's what the gospel does. Philippians 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, so appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that's one reason why we ought not to watch movies or depictions trying to present the suffering of Jesus, the passion of the Christ. They can't can't express the depth of that horror. They present suffering only as earthly, physical, mental, emotional. They can't show the suffering that was so much greater, the spiritual. Even if they had words to convey the depth of Christ's suffering, the visible depiction of the earthly suffering crowds out all other suffering. But the spiritual suffering is far greater. God forsook his son. Jesus suffered God's wrath against our sins, the sins of his people. He descended into hell as we confessed even this evening. Jesus' appearance was so marred, more than any man, his form more than the sons of men, although he himself was righteous, pure, and holy. He served as our head, our federal, our covenant head. He took upon himself our guilt, our sin. He did that willingly. He wasn't forced to. Well, from a human perspective, the Roman government whipped him, beat him, put him on that cross, nailed him to it. But again, we don't just look with earthly eyes. All along was Jesus who took it upon himself, refusing to resist, refusing to curse, not calling a legion of angels. 
He was active in his suffering. Because of what Jesus did, all those who trust in him are forgiven of their sins. Believe. Believe and God forgives for the sake of Jesus. Dear friend, let me ask you, what's your spiritual condition? What do you look like spiritually? If you're not trusting in Jesus, if you don't belong to Jesus, spiritually you're twisted, you're marred because of Adam's sin, because of your own. You've sinned against the Most High God. And your sin calls down upon you God's wrath, His just wrath. And God punishes sin both now and in eternity in the fires of hell. Why will you perish in your sin? God has provided the Savior. And all those who cast themselves on the Savior are saved. People around us, perhaps you maybe spend so much time making themselves pretty, handsome, elegant, yet all the time spiritually. They're so deformed. They're so marred. Christ's appearance was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men, so that we would be restored spiritually, restored to wholeness, beauty, handsome. And young people, children, many of you look quite nice outside, and that's good. It's good to show reverence to God that as we're able, we, we come into the presence of God and worship wearing our best. That's good. That's proper. But what do you look like on the inside? Are you trusting? Are you loving God? Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross. But he didn't stay there. Praise God, Jesus did not stay crucified or dead. But on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead and then exalted Jesus to majesty in heaven. That message, as then we come to in our third point, the next verse, it's proclaimed to his worldwide following. His worldwide following. Verse 15. We move on. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Now, now verse 14 told us that many were astonished at what the servant looked like, and yet it's the servant who will sprinkle many nations. The servant appeared to be unrighteous, unholy, cursed, right? Hung on a tree. And so he was for the sin of his people. But the servant is actually personally righteous, wholly blessed. And so the servant can be the one to cleanse the people, sprinkle them so they can be clean. That's what we do when we sprinkle something, right? Well, maybe we water it, right? but, but sprinkle, cleanse. They too can approach God. And look who it is that the servant sprinkles, many nations. The word translated nations there could also be translated Gentiles. It's not only the people of Israel who are cleansed, the Jews, but the cleansing extends to other nations, all people's groups. So great is the servant's work. So great is the servant himself, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses. Those who benefit from him extend to the ends of the earth. His appearance was admired more than any man, human semblance. 
So in his restoration, he will sprinkle many humans. There's more, though. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. What they are told as the servant sprinkles them, in his sprinkling of them, leads to their being amazed. So amazed, they, they shut their mouths. You know, kids, sometimes something amazing happens. We're, we're at a loss for words, aren't we? That's what will happen here. Now we think about that. Now for many years, hundreds, thousands of years, the Gentiles were left without spiritual light. God left them to themselves. He took to himself a people, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews, Israel. He left all others to the dominion of Satan, the spiritual darkness of idolatry. But when the, the servant of the Lord, when he sent, when he atones for the sin of mankind, not only the sin of the Jews, but sin of Gentiles also, when we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then spiritual light shines on the Gentiles. They had not been told in the Old Covenant, but they will see in the New Covenant. They had not heard, but they will understand. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 21, he was part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. He took the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, even to governors, even the capital city of the Roman Gentile Empire. If church tradition has it correct, the Apostle Paul even took the message to the Roman emperor himself. Now, of course, the Roman emperor didn't believe, and not all who heard believed, but many did. For Christ bound Satan so he could deceive the nations no longer. The gospel has gone forth, and the church has expanded far beyond the Jews. I trust many of us here this evening, maybe perhaps you're of Jewish ethnicity, which is wonderful. But many of us probably are not. We're the fulfillment of this prophecy. You are. Your name isn't there in the Bible, but right here, you are fulfillment. Because we see. Because you understand. We, by God's grace, believe. See with the eyes of faith. So great is the person, the work, the glory of the servant of the Lord, that we, at the ends of the earth from Israel, we, thousands of years later, we believe. What grace, what glory are declared to us. The Son of God has come. Jesus, the servant of the Lord, he's conquered. God has exalted Jesus to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. And so people of God, be astonished at the sufferings of Christ, but even more marvel at his glory as he speaks to you of his righteousness, of his grace, as you hear the voice of Christ in the preaching of the gospel proclaimed to you. Bow before Jesus. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And don't do that only with your mouth, though, but with all of your life. Live out this righteousness that Jesus has brought by his death, by his resurrection. Say no to the world, the flesh, the devil, who would have you live according to their code of conduct. By God's grace, say no to ungodly lusts and passions. Why? Not just because God's law says so, that's good reason enough, but because Christ has brought righteousness. He has set you free. He has brought this, and His Spirit lives in you. And as you go through suffering and hard times, hold fast to Jesus.
that no matter how you feel, in Christ, you are right with God. You are heir to life everlasting. And then when others marvel at you, they wonder, how are you doing it? God's just been giving you an opportunity. He's just giving you an opportunity to evangelize. To tell them what perhaps they have not yet seen. What they had not yet understood. It's not in money, it's not in exercise, it's not in family, it's not in pleasures that your hope is placed. It's in the Son of God who has rescued you from sin, from death, who's given you hope and a future, meaning he suffered so you would have life and have it to the full. God will bring you through your suffering. He will bring you into the glory of the resurrection. Tell others of God's mercy to you. Tell them of your hope. Tell them of your theme. Hope in God's servant who suffered and then was exalted. By God's grace, may we do so. And may God receive all the praise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you sending your son. Thank you, O Christ, for taking upon yourself our sin. For being marred beyond any human semblance of the sons of men. For us, for the glory of our God and the saving of your people. Please, Fill us with your spirit that we would never forget that. That in our struggles, in our temptations, in our joys, we keep this theme of Christ, that's our theme, front and center. Give us courage to tell others about this servant. The righteousness, the life that is in him. And change their hearts. Lord, there are so many who are despairing. And apart from you, there is only despair. But we have the words of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond by taking Trinity Psalter hymnal and turning to number 111b. 111b. Oh, give the Lord wholehearted praise. We'll sing stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6. 1, 2, 5, and 6. Number 111b.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.